You will remember that in Colossians chapter 1, verses 14 through 19, 20, Paul had set forth a number of items discussing the glory of Jesus Christ. He had considered Christ's relationship to the old and new creation, how that Jesus was the image and the firstborn and the Lord and the head and the beginning, all of those things establishing Christ as the first and the highest and the most honored in the creating of the world, in the redeeming of the church, in the making of the new creation. It revealed, secondly, why Jesus Christ was given each of these high honors, which was that he might have the preeminence in all things. And then in answering the question of why Jesus Christ should have the preeminence in all things, why these things should be given to Christ, that he alone might have this preeminence, he gave a two-part answer. First of all, because the fullness of God had taken up residence in him, Christ had the fullness of grace, the fullness of the Godhead dwelling in him, only he could impart these blessings and do all of these things and it would only be suitable for him to have these honors. And so all things were so ordered and so ordained that he might have this preeminence. Secondly, uh, the reason why it was given to Christ to have the preeminence in all things was that he was to be the redeemer of all things. That by his bloody sacrificial death bearing the wrath of God, he slew the enmity between God and sinners, bringing a relationship of peace, of mutual friendship, and more than that, he confirmed the standing of the angelic host and bought the glorious liberty of the sons of God for the very creation itself, which had been unwillingly subjected to vanity and bondage. And so, as Christ was to be the blood redeemer of all things, redeemed in the heaven and the earth, for this reason it was so ordained that he would be exalted to a preeminence over all things in the heavens and in the earth. And then finally we reach that last question in the chain of logic. Why was Christ the one in whom the fullness of God chose to take up residence? Why was Christ the one appointed to be the Redeemer of all things? And at that question we were locked up into that final and glorious mystery of the good pleasure of God. God's eternal counsel. It pleased God. Not arbitrary, not capricious, but the sovereign determination of an all-wise, all-good God, full of mercy and grace and justice and holiness, love and truth, inscrutable and glorious, this pleasure of God. And that took us up through verse 20. Having set forth in general terms Christ's redeeming work, Paul turns now to a specific application. Christ's redeeming work in the behalf of the Colossians and its application to their own souls. He writes, because in him, verse 19, because in him God was pleased for all the fullness to dwell and through him to reconcile all things unto himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, whether the things upon the earth or the things in the heavens, and you, formerly being aliens and enemies in the mind by wicked works, now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and unarrainable and un unreprovable in his sight. And you, formerly being aliens and enemies in the mind by wicked works, 
Now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and unarrainable in his sight. After you chop away all of the uh, modifiers and uh, participles and verbal clauses and all those things, the basic sentence here, the main statement, the main point is this, and you, he now has reconciled. And you, he now has reconciled. It is the direct application to the Colossians of the doctrine that he has just been explaining. Christ was the great reconciler of the universe, of all things in heaven and upon earth. By his bloody cross, he made peace. He slew the enmity. He restored the fellowship. He confirmed the angels. He renewed creation. He rescued sinners. But all of this is kind of in the general terms, isn't it? Christ is the reconcile. All, all reconciled things were reconciled by Christ. But now he puts it personally. And you, he reconciled. You Colossians. You Colossians reading this letter right now. Your reconciliation was by this same Christ. This preeminent Christ. This Christ of all fullness. This dying and suffering Christ. And you, he now reconciled. There are a couple of points which I think he intended them to draw from this and which are explained or uh, uh, emphasized in the surrounding parts of the text. The first point is simply this. The Colossians have been reconciled to God. And you, he now reconciled. It was not something being done to them over time. It was not a process this reconciliation, not an ongoing sort of a thing. It certainly was not the fruit or the culmination of their own efforts and strivings that as they labored in holiness, they would become more and more reconciled to God. It wasn't this at all. It wasn't something they were to hope for for the future. Perhaps someday, if we just try hard enough and are holy enough and pursue long enough and buffet our flesh long enough, we'll be reconciled to God. It wasn't that at all. It was a matter of fact. It was a matter of history. Something accomplished. Something done. You, he, now has reconciled. Now, in order to emphasize this fact and the great change which has come upon them, and in fact, in, in order to prove that they are now reconciled to God, he draws attention to their original condition, to the fact that they have not always been in a state of mutual friendship and peace and love and receiving of blessing from God, not at all. He says, And you formerly, being aliens and enemies in the mind by wicked or evil works, now has he reconciled. This was their original condition. This is what they were before. He's reminding them. You were once, or formerly, the word is. They aren't now. You were once, you were formerly, aliens and enemies. Two things to describe their former, one-time relationship with God. First of all, they were aliens. This is the image of citizenship. To be an alien has to do with one's citizenship. Um, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, where, or actually starting at verse 11, Wherefore remember 
that you being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time you were without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. The alien is the foreigner, the stranger. He's not a citizen. If salvation is likened to membership in a nation, then the unsaved ones are aliens and strangers. They don't have the rights and privileges of the citizen. They have no part in the country. Even if they reside there for a time, they don't belong there as a native does, as a citizen. These Colossians were aliens from the new creation. They had no rights before God. They had no privileges of the citizen of the kingdom of heaven. No pardon, no assurance, no access to the heavenly throne. They had no king as a defender against their enemies. They had no angels, no right to the mark of citizenship. They were angel. A they were aliens. They were strangers. They were far off. They were outside of this commonwealth of salvation. This is how they once were. They were strangers, aliens, foreigners. They had no part with the citizens of the true kingdom of God. But they weren't just aliens or strangers. You see, you could be a not have, be a citizen, but still be a perfectly on perfectly amicable terms uh, with the uh, with the king and the citizens of the nation uh, perfectly friendly you know you just happened to just not a citizen it wasn't like that at all they weren't just aliens they were enemies this is the image of war to be an alien is to be without privilege or status or right to be an enemy is to be in an active state of hostility they were arrayed in battle against Jesus Christ if you will the same way one would array against a foreign king. See, this wasn't just a kingdom they weren't citizens of. They were citizens of another kingdom, hostile to this heavenly kingdom. And they were soldiers enlisted to fight for that kingdom. And they were enemies of King Jesus. Specifically, they were enemies in the mind by evil works. The command center of this war against God, if you will, was located in their minds. They were enemies in the mind. This word represents the, as one commentator puts it, the seat of thought or of disposition. It is sometimes translated the understanding, as it is in uh, Ephesians 1.18, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. It is sometimes characterized by ignorance and darkness this mind is, according to uh, Ephesians 4, 18. Having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them. But, just as the understanding can be characterized by ignorance and darkness, so it can be enlightened with knowledge. It is different from the flesh, because in Ephesians 2, 3 it says, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. It's two different things. But it is often paralleled and related to the heart, uh, what Scripture calls the heart. For example, a, a passage quoted twice, Hebrews 8.10 and Hebrews 10.16, the same passage. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts. 
or as it is in 10.16, I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds will I write them. Uh, so parallel, perhaps identified with, through parallelism, the heart. This is a very important thing. We are accustomed to, th to speaking of people's opposition to God as being in their flesh or in their hearts. They don't love God, we say. And if they loved God, then they wouldn't be sinning and hostile to God. But the scriptures place the beginning, I think, the beginning of opposition to God in the understanding. This ties in with Hebrews 3. The root of sin is unbelief. That's the root of sin, unbelief. Uh, we read in Hebrews chapter 3 about the Israelites, how that in the day of temptation in the wilderness, they provoked God, they tempted God, and so he was grieved with them and said, they always are in their heart and have not known my ways, and swore that they would not enter into his rest, and so their carcasses fell in the wilderness. And you remember how, how virtually an entire generation, the, the, the nation of Israel was kept in the wilderness until an entire generation had died, saving only the uh, Caleb and the one other fellow, uh, the, the faithful spies, and then the young people who'd grown up who had not been part of that, uh, of that apostasy. He says, with whom was he grieved forty years? Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest? But to them that believed not. So we see that they could not enter in to the promised land because of unbelief. Now, this was their departing from the living God. They had an evil heart of unbelief. Verse 12, departing from the living God. How did they depart from the living God? 1 Corinthians 10 <coughs> Chapter uh, chapter 10, verses 5 through 12. Speaking of our fathers who were under the cloud, passed through the sea, many of them God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things were our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Neither be ye idolaters, as were some of them. Neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Neither let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur ye as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now all these things happened unto them for examples and they're written for our admonition upon whom the end of the worlds are come. Wherefore let him think, think if he standeth take heed lest he fall. You see it was over the course of years that this departure from God took place that was caused, according to Hebrews, by their unbelief. But it was manifested by lusting after evil things, by becoming idolaters, by committing fornication, by tempting Christ, by murmuring. All of these different sins had as their beginnings the evil heart of unbelief. <coughs> Foolish, darkened, ignorant, unbelieving minds. And so it is with every sinner. Their minds are ignorant. They don't know the truth. Their minds are darkened. It's like being in a fog, a thick fog. You can't penetrate to the truth when it's presented. Instead, they have foolish minds. They embrace error and folly. But centrally, they don't believe the truth. And this fact, when joined with their evil hearts and their corrupt flesh that they have by nature... <coughs> lead them on to wicked works. And so it had been with these Colossians. They had no care for the truth. They had no knowledge. 
of the truth, no understanding. They were in unbelief. They didn't believe in the true God. They didn't believe in the eternal Son and His mediating work. They didn't believe God's declarations about Himself and His Son and their condition before Him. They were in unbelief. They scoffed. They mocked. They went on about their business. <coughs> said, perhaps we'll listen to you another day, as those in Athens had done. And therefore, therefore, the business that they went about was sin. Wicked works. As they did not believe God's law, they were free to cross it. As they did not believe in judgment to come, they were free to eat, drink, and be merry. And they descended more and more into sin and lasciviousness, given over to their lusts, without God and without a thought of God. This was the state of the Colossians, and this is the state of every sinner. Unbelieving mind. They won't believe the truth about God, and they won't believe the truth about themselves. And until you believe the truth about yourself and the truth about God, you will never be saved. Their minds are foggy and dark and ignorant. Clearly presented with the truth, they cannot or will not grasp it. And they scoff and mock and ignore. Even in the face of the most direct revelation of God, of His holiness, and of their terrible condition, they will pursue high-handed evil directly against the Lord. They're enemies to God. It's just like these Israelites. I mean, there they were. They had seen the power of God, the manifestation of the glory of God, leading them, delivering them out of Egypt. They, 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 they'd seen as much of God as God was revealing. They'd seen the glory of God in the face of Moses as he came down from the mountain. They had the word of God set before them regularly. They had God's appointed teachers and leaders over them. And what did they do? Lust after evil things, commit idolatry, fornication, tempt Christ and murmur. And they were destroyed because they had an evil heart of unbelief. They were God's enemies. They might not have even known it. Most sinners don't or believe it. They might rationalize it or hide it or deny it. It might not even be openly apparent until they're pressed with the claims of truth. And then they will not stand it. Become enraged or indifferent, one way or another, sophisticated or crude, they strike out and they show their malice and their unbelief. They're enemies by evil works. Now Paul says, you Colossians were once like this. You were wicked, do doing, unbelieving enemies of God, strangers and aliens to salvation and to heavenly citizenship, to the kingdom of God. This is where you were, remember? Don't you remember, he says. Things weren't like they are now. They were different. But now something has changed. Now, but now, you have been reconciled. A great change has taken place. Peace has been made. Friendly relations restored. Once dark, now light. Once you were ignorant, now you have knowledge. Once you were strangers, now you're citizens. Once you were enemies of God and His people, now you're friends. You've been reconciled. The second point that he wanted to make, I think, in bringing this up, this direct application. It's also a restatement of something he'd said more generally in the previous verse. This reconciliation was accomplished in Christ, in the body of his flesh through death. In the body of his flesh through death. This is a very carefully worded, <coughs> precise theological statement. It is meant to directly counter the spurious doctrines being intruded at Colossae. First of all, this reconciliation took place in the body of his flesh. 
That is where reconciliation was accomplished, in the body of his flesh, because Jesus' body was the temple. Reconciliation was not only something done by Christ, it was an act accomplished in Christ, if you will, as the location of the transaction. This location was his fleshly body. This is very purposefully stated. There are many kinds of bodies, according to 1 Corinthians, terrestrial, celestial, angelic, and human. And this was done in a fleshly body. The temple of reconciliation was God made man, a real man. Not an angelic man, not a fake man, a real man. Christ was incarnate. He was made flesh. He dwelt among us. He assumed a real humanity. He had flesh and blood just like you do and just like I do. The temple was a fleshly body. It had to be. Only man could die for man. Only man could stand in man's place. In fact, only a man could die. And that is the other thing here. Reconciliation took place in the body of his flesh, as the location, the fleshly temple, but it took place through death. We've seen this before. The cross, the bloodshed, here it's summed up, through death. Reconciliation took place by an atonement, a sacrifice, by a blood sacrifice, by the death of the offering. The lamb had to be slain. It had to die to actually lose its life, and so it was in this real transaction. Christ did not pretend to suffer. Christ did not pretend to die. No more than God pretended to lay the sins of man upon him. No more than God pretended to pour out wrath and judgment. It was the real thing, a real incarnation, a real body, real flesh, a real cross, real nails, a real spear piercing the side, real blood. Real death. And we come now to the third part of his statement here, which is to reveal some of the benefits of this reconciliation. The purpose of it. Why did Christ reconcile them to God in the body of his flesh through death? Why was that done? Was it to make them so that they could do whatever they wanted? Was it just to give them some fire insurance? Was it just because... No, there's a, there's a purpose behind it. To present you holy and blameless and unarrainable, I'll explain that word, in his sight. This reconciliation was to lead to three things for these Colossians. They were to be holy, they were to be blameless and unreprovable, unarrainable. Now, there's been a lot of debate around these words. Um, do they refer to gradual sanctification? Do they refer to positional sanctification? Do they refer to final sanctification? Do they refer to the covering provided by the death of Christ and the imputation of righteousness? Do they refer to the actual transformation of man into a holy being? See, all of those things are true. It's just a question of which one or which ones are meant here. It is undeniable that God gradually and definitively sanctifies those in this life whom he redeems. It is certainly scripturally true that God immediately, positionally sanctifies the redeemed. They wear the righteousness of Christ. It's spotless. And so he remembers their sins no more. And it is certainly true that God will match those things up in the end. Uh, the positional sanctification and gradual sanctification will, in a sense, meet in final sanctification. But we will be purified of sin. 
And I think that's probably more what's meant here. It's more of an eschatological statement, something pointing to the last day. And for the, the reason I say that is because of this language of presenting in his sight, these Colossians. Uh, to present refers to the wedding day, the day when Christ will come to claim his perfected bride. It is a, a parallel with Ephesians 5, uh, 25 through 27. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. See, that there's going to be a day of presentation. There's going to be a wedding feast, a, a, a last day in which Christ returns to claim his bride, and he'll present his bride to himself, and she'll be a spotless bride, a perfect bride, a bride to match the holy God. And all will sit down at the wedding feast at the table furnished by Christ. In that day, as I said, the gradual and positional sanctification will meet. We are now in the sight of God by Christ's righteousness, holy, blameless and unreprovable, praise God. Yet in actuality, we're sinners, aren't we? We daily incur guilt and blame. But this is gradually being remedied in us by the work of the Holy Spirit. And in the last day at the resurrection, that will be made complete. We'll be still clothed with Christ's righteousness, but we will also be perfected in holiness. And so it is true that we are so because of the reconciliation in the body of his flesh through death. And we will be so because of the reconciliation in the body of his flesh through death. What do these words mean? To be blameless, that's fairly obvious. It means to be without blame, without guilt. Having nothing for which we can be rightly found at fault. Uh, this, this word, interestingly, is the word that is used to describe the purity of the sacrifices. Uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14. It says, uh, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God... <clears throat> Purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Also, First Peter, First Peter chapter one verse nineteen, Peter writes, "But the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, is what we were redeemed by." The thing so described is the perfect specimen, if you will. Nothing can be found for which this thing should be rejected. And in a religious context, it means it's something perfectly suited to the service of God. That was the purpose, incidentally, of the Old Testament ordinances, of the cleansing, constant cleansing of things, of even objects. It was not, and in fact, making them beautiful and keeping them clean and all those things. It wasn't because God is, is into wealth. Uh, it wasn't because God has a, this thing about dirt, that dirt is sinful. Dust, you know, you got to get the cobwebs out of your uh, corners of your house or you're sinning against God. It wasn't that at all. That's nonsense. This was a picture of how the service of God requires a kind of moral purity. And so, when we go, when we enter into heaven, and we're going to stand before God as His priests and ministers and serve Him forever. We have to be blameless. And that's why we have to be blameless now by the righteousness of Christ. That Christ has to stand in our place if we're to be the servants of God. Because God requires blameless servants. 
To be unarrainable, that's the third term. I've translated that way for a specific reason. It is a legal term, a term of justice, and it is important to get this. It is also frequently translated blameless, but I consider that to be a somewhat misleading translation that properly goes with the word we've just considered. It's used four other times. It's used in 1 Corinthians 1.8 about the day of judgment. It's a legal term, the day of judgment. 1 Corinthians 1.8 Who shall also confirm you into the end that you may be unarrainable, unconvictable in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's also used 1 Timothy 3.10 and Titus 1.6 and 7. It says the deacon must be blameless or, or unarrainable, unconvictable. Also the bishop must be blameless, unconvictable, unarrainable. It means to stand in court before a judge, to face any and all accusations, but to have none of which you can be convicted. Nothing will stick. The charges won't stick, as they say today. 1 Corinthians 1.8, as I said, it's the day of judgment. In Jesus Christ, we can go before the judge, and, and, and the accuser can come. The, accu the devil will come and accuse us in the day of judgment, and we'll be acquitted. Because of the righteousness of Christ, we'll be unarrainable. Because our sins are covered. They're, they're, they're punished in Christ. He became sin in our behalf. And so, the Christian can go before God in the last day and have the accuser come and hurl every accusation that he can think of. And because of the righteousness of Christ, he's acquitted, not guilty, innocent. He can't be convicted. And that's the importance of the term as it's describing these candidates for office and the characteristics that they have to have in the church. It's saying, it's, it's, it's a legal term. They must not be able to be convictable, if you will, in the court of the church of the offenses and conditions spoken of. See, this is very vital to understand from another perspective when you're talking about office, because it's not saying, well, there mustn't be a, a, some sort of, uh, uh, that, that some uh, person is disqualified for office because some person comes up and makes an accusation against them. Some person's disqualified for office because there's a rumor or something like that. No, it has to be charges against them sustainable by the standard, by legal standards, if you will before they can be disqualified. So that's this idea, to be unarrainable, a term of justice. Holy, that's a broadly used term, we've talked about that many times, indicates both being set apart for the service of God and being qualified by sanctification for that service. In other words, what is set apart for God's use is by that act a holy thing, but yet it must also be made holy in order to be so used. You think of the animals, the Old Testament pots and vessels. They were in a sense holy because they were set apart, but they also had to be cleansed. They had to be purified. They, the animals had to be without spot and blemish before they could be become set apart. So it's all tied together. So it is with God's saints. They're holy. They're set apart for God, but they're also cleansed. They're going to be purified by sanctification in order to fulfill that service. Here it's partial and gradual, and that day it'll be total and completed. So we see these things blend together. What's going on here? We're being gradually sanctified. What's already true? By the righteousness of Christ, we stand before God, holy, blameless, and unreprovable. And in the last day, when we're purified, we will be actually holy. And as far as all future things go, blameless and unarrainable. But see, that doesn't mean that we do away with the need for the righteousness of Christ. 
First of all, though we will be at that point conformed to God's holiness, we'll have a lifetime of sin behind us. And that is what we're going to be judged on account of. And so that has to be covered and always covered. See, that's the whole thing. The natural man has the idea that if he can, by the end of his life, get good enough, then he's okay with God because he ends up in a good place. That's not at all. That's like if you spent the last 40 years, you know, and in the first one you'd killed 20 people. And the next year, you you killed 19 and 18 and 17 until you were down to just killing people every, like, you know, maybe three or four or five years and finally you weren't killing anybody. That now you could go before the court, you know, and they're going to say, you're fine. You're innocent. You can head out. You're a great guy. You know, have a great rest of your life. It isn't like that, is it? That would be madness. And it's not like that with God. It's not good enough to end up in the right place. We've got to have a cover for all of the sin that's behind us. So we always have to have that robe of Christ's righteousness. And secondly, it is Christ's righteousness that purchases the very sanctification that will ultimately purify us to be actually holy and blameless and unreprovable. <clears throat> now the purpose of this text, especially uh, in the broader context, is to refute and resist certain heresies that were being intruded on the Colossians. We've talked about that before, and it really comes out here. There's five of them. First of all, there was this idea, and we'll see this as we continue more and more, physical reality is evil. Matter is evil. The flesh, the body, physical things are evil. We need a spiritual religion. We want to have to do with spiritual things. We don't want physical things. That's bad. And so because of that, they could not tolerate the idea that Christ was a real man and took real flesh. Because flesh is evil. Well, that is completely denied. Christ had a body. He had flesh and blood. It wasn't a charade. Matter isn't evil. The creation will be redeemed. God created all things and they were good. The body will be redeemed. Physical things are part of God's good creation. We don't need asceticism, we'll see. We don't need self-abuse or self-indulgence uh, to supposedly uh, show how we despise the flesh. See, there were two extremes. They would either go to asceticism historically or they would go to licentiousness by explaining that they were despising the flesh by indulging it to show the superiority that they had over it. Uh, the amazing depths of, uh, of, of uh, abandonment that people can reach. So they had this, this, this idea of the evil nature of physical matter is completely denied. Christ was a real man with real flesh. Of course, the corollary, the second part of their error, if Christ wasn't a real man, then Christ didn't die. If there's no body, no flesh, then his death wasn't real. It couldn't be real. He wasn't a man. Only men can die. You've got to be a, a physical thing to die, to undergo death. It was all a show. It was all a charade. A trick. Well, Paul denies that entirely. Christ was a man, and in the body of his flesh he suffered. He died. He was crucified. Pierced. Blood ran out. He gave up the spirit. Real suffering. Real death. Well, you see, they, they continued onward. Matter is evil. So Christ wasn't real flesh. Since Christ wasn't real flesh, he couldn't have died. And if he didn't die, that means that in his death, he did not reconcile or atone or satisfy for sin. You see how we're gutting out the entire foundation of the true gospel simply by beginning with denying 
that physical matter, by saying that physical matter is evil, so that Christ was a man, so that he didn't die, so therefore in his death he didn't accomplish, he didn't satisfy, he wasn't a sacrifice, he didn't offer himself to God. The whole scheme of the gospel they denied, essentially, by the time you're done, or in its most mature form. If there's no body, there's no death. If there's no death, there's no satisfaction. No justification by faith. Instead, we can substitute another scheme. Some other way of reconciliation by man, or at least completed by man. Some kind of enlightenment, or salvation through mysticism, or angelic mediators, or uh, buffeting your body, or man-invented ordinances, or restoring Jewish carnal observations. No, Paul says. You are reconciled. It's done. It's taken place. It was accomplished in substance at the cross. And it's been applied in time by the Holy Spirit through faith when you receive the gospel that I preach to you. You don't need anything else. Christ is all the reconciliation you need. It's all there is. And you have it. It's not something you need to seek by these other schemes. So, so you see how in its most mature form, which I don't think was probably being taught in Colossae, but he's grabbing on the... Uh, the implications in its most mature form. If you deny that Christ's a man, you say that matter is evil, then Christ didn't die, then there's no atonement. And so reconciliation has to be by some other means, or at least the spiritual advancement. Spiritual growth, they said, is also obtained by these other methods. Christ's kind of the gate, maybe, but but, but, uh, these other things are the pathway. Paul denies that. He says Christ is the gate and the pathway. Holiness, blamelessness, to be unarrainable in God's sight. Where does sanctification come from? It comes in the body of His flesh through death, reconciling us to God. That's where it comes from. To purchase it and to bring it to pass. He's presenting Himself with a holy bride. Reconciliation is by Christ. Sanctification is by Christ. And so, of course, culminating their error, matter is evil... Christ wasn't a man, Christ didn't die, there's no atonement in him, spiritual growth isn't through him, he's not central. He's pushed off to the side. No, Christ is all of those things that we talked about, and all of those things for you. If you have reconciliation, it's by Christ. If you have holiness, it's by Christ. If you have future security and redemption, it's by Christ. In the body of his flesh through death, reconciling us to God. Of course... A lot of those errors are with us today in one way, shape, or form or another. The Gnostic movement has especially been recreated in the New Age type thinking. Just a couple of applications to stress from these texts. First of all, we are reminded once again that man is in need of reconciliation. We are enemies in our mind by wicked works. We're aliens. You don't start out being right with God. You start out being wrong with God. Aliens. Enemies in your mind by wicked works. And if you never admit that, if you never admit to this point, this place, that this is your condition, if you never receive this, the gospel is useless to you. You've got to see the enmity, the alienation, the guilt, the state of your heart. And then when you see that, You can come to application too, which is that reconciliation is found only in Christ. There's only one way. So, Because sometimes people start to see that and they start running off for every other thing. You know, they're whipping themselves or praying 16 hours a day or trying to be good. Oh, I'm in trouble. I'm guilty before God. I've got to straighten up my life. 
I gotta get I gotta get right with God. I gotta get religious. I'm gonna go to church. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna obey the Ten Commandments. I'm gonna do I'm gonna be right. And then I'll be okay. Well we talked about that already, didn't we? It's the old the murderer thing. It's too late for that. It's too late for that. There's only one way. In principle, it was accomplished on Calvary in the body of Christ's flesh through death. There's only one way to receive it, and that is faith in the gospel of reconciliation. Everything else is spurious and false and damnable. There's only one gate, and that is faith in Jesus Christ unto salvation. And finally then, future holiness, security, access to the throne of God only in Christ. Christ is not just the gate, he's the pathway. This, uh, this, uh, many believe this is actually where, at this point, the error in Colossae was heading. That they were, they were admitting a role for Christ in the entry into the Christian life, but then he was shuttled off to the side, and uh, all of these other doctrines were coming in. Angels, self-abuse, you know, it, it, was, it was this whole pathway thing that you were on your way to reconciliation and enlightenment. You, got, you started out with Jesus, but after that, we put Jesus over in the closet, and we go on with, uh, you know, angels and demons and who knows what else. Well, it's not like that. Christ is not the gate only. He is the pathway. Faith is not the gate only. It is the pathway. The just shall live by faith. Unbelief is what causes us to depart from the living God. It is the life of faith that is the life of sanctification. All other ways are spurious and false and damnable. <clears throat> Next week, then, we will uh, consider the rest of uh, Paul's statement. If you continue in the faith, grounded and settled, be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you've heard, which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister culminates uh, this section and takes us into the next part.